Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do honor you and worship you, praise you and thank you for all that you are for your people. And we pray that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit this morning as we look at this passage of Micah. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, show us the things that you want us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Micah chapter 5. And if you're with us regularly, then you know that we've been reading through the book of the prophet Micah for a few weeks now. In chapters 2 and 3, we heard about God's judgment against the sins of his people, how the rich were oppressing the poor, and the priests and the prophets were preaching whatever lies their audiences wanted to hear, whatever would put money in their own pockets. God condemned all of that, the way that God had planned for his people to live together with each other and with him, was falling apart because of how the people were loving what was evil and hating what was good. And so we heard how God planned to bring his people low. He would take Mount Zion, where their capital city stood, and flatten it like a field. That was at the end of chapter 3. But we also heard last week, at the beginning of chapter 4, how God planned to raise his people up again. It shall come to pass in the latter days, he said, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that very same place God said he would flatten, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills. God would restore the place where he dwelled with his people, and he would raise them up again to be his people, to walk in the way of his goodness. You heard Father David preach about all that last week, how God planned to bring his people low so that he could raise them up again. How he planned to lay waste to their self-reliance and their sin so that he could build them up again in faith and in righteousness. And in our chapter today, chapter 5, we see a similar dynamic. Yes, for a time, God's people will suffer defeat. But in the end, they will enjoy an everlasting victory. Defeat for a time and victory forever. Look with me, if you would, in your bulletin or in your Bible, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So here's the time of defeat, right? God's people would be besieged by a foreign army. They would have to muster their troops and go to battle. And they would lose the battle badly. Their rulers would be humiliated, struck on the cheek by the enemy. As a consequence of their sin, God's people would suffer defeat and humiliation at the hands of their enemies. But, from verse 2 through to the end of this chapter, God's focus is to tell us that this time of humbling defeat will not last forever. His ultimate purpose is to give his people victory over their enemies. It's that victory that we'll be focused on this morning. 
We're going to talk about the victory that God promises to his people, how that victory comes, and what it looks like. And the very first thing that we should know about this victory is that it is inseparably linked to the coming of the Christ. Look with me, if you would, at verse 2. I bet, you, I bet you know this verse because it's in Matthew's Gospel. He quotes the prophet Micah there, and we read it every Christmas. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem Ephrathah, the little town of Bethlehem. This podunk town's only claim to fame was that old King David had been born there centuries earlier. And of course, when he was born, David wasn't a king. He was just a regular shepherd boy, right? But then God chose him, sending a prophet to anoint him as king over all God's people. And God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of God's people forever. Well, here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God is confirming to his people the promise that he made long ago, that that anointed ruler in the line of King David will come. The people are going to suffer a dramatic defeat and their current rulers will be humiliated. In fact, they'll be dethroned. They'll lose their king and they won't have another king in the line of David. To all appearances, God's promise to David will have failed. But no, God tells us here, even on the other side of this terrible defeat and this apparent end to David's line, I will still bring forth that promised ruler, the Christ, my anointed one. I will bring forth that shepherd from Bethlehem. Therefore, God continues in verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Like a woman in labor whose pain comes to an end when her child is born, The pain and suffering of God's defeated people comes to an end when the Christ is born, when he comes into the world, born in Bethlehem to a family descended from David. He, Jesus Christ, is the one Micah is talking about here, of course, the glorious ruler whose birth was promised of old. And look at the description of this ruler, how it continues in verses 4 and 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus is the great shepherd and king of God's people who rules... Notice this, he rules not in his own strength, not in his own name, but in the strength of the Lord, in the name of the, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
So unlike the rulers of Micah's day, those powerful and wealthy elites who are trusting in their own riches and in their own armies, in their own strength, unlike them, Jesus rules God's people by placing perfect trust in God his Father. Jesus' strength And this is a good thing for us to remember as we go into Holy Week soon. Jesus' strength is that he trusts in the strength and the goodness of his Father. That's why he can do this incredible thing of going to the cross for us. Father, not my will, but yours be done, he says. Jesus lays his life down, trusting in God to raise him up again. He willingly suffers the pain and humiliation and weakness of death on a cross, trusting that through all of that, God is powerfully at work for the good of his people. That's how Jesus rules God's people. That's how Jesus brings God's people victory. By giving himself up for us on the cross, as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And so it's in Jesus alone that this victory we're talking about today can be found. He shall be their peace, verse 5 says. He himself shall be their peace. That's right. It's because Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, crucified for our sins and risen to glorious life, it's because this Jesus is alive and reigns forever that we have peace and victory today. The peace, the victory that Jesus gives us, it's not a product separate from himself that he can give us and then say, okay, you've got it now, bye, I'm going somewhere else. No, what Jesus gives us is himself. The peace and the victory are in him forever. So if we stay close to Christ, if we dwell in him by faith, then this peace and this victory are ours. But if we depart from Christ, then we can never find this peace or this victory anywhere else. It's only in him. So that's how this victory we're talking about today comes. It comes in the person of Jesus Christ. But what exactly does it look like? What does it mean, this victory that I'm talking about? Jesus gives us the victory, okay, over what exactly? What are we victorious over in him? Well, part of the answer comes in verses 8 and 9, where we see that God promises his people victory over enemy nations. Here are verses 8 and 9. And the remnant of Jacob, that means God's people, Israel, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. In the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. This is an image of astonishing reversal isn't it? For a time, God's people would suffer defeat and humiliation at the hands of their enemies, but now a time is coming when they will be like a roaring lion 
walking without fear and tearing apart all the other animals, the other nations of the earth. It's a startling reversal. And this is part of the victory that God promises to us in Micah. That God brings us in Jesus Christ. Victory over all our enemies. Over all our oppressors. Over all the forces that make life hard for God's people. But now I I can sense that this may be what some of you are thinking. There's a danger here, isn't there? There's a danger that we could take this image in a petty and vindictive kind of direction, right? Micah is not saying here that God will give us sweet revenge against everyone we don't like, everyone who bugs us. It's not that if someone cuts you off in traffic, you should think, oh, just wait, buddy. When Jesus comes back, he's going to cut you down. He's going to make me like a young lion ripping you to shreds. No, that's not what's going on here. That would be a profoundly un-Christian way of thinking, wouldn't it? A a very un-Christ-like expectation. If we've paid any attention at all to God's word, we know that God commands us to forgive, to love, and to pray for our enemies. That's the attitude we should have toward them. Even when other people do wrong by us, God commands us to do good by them. And of course, Jesus is himself the perfect ultimate example of this, isn't he? He gives his whole life for us, even while we were the ones who were ready to kill him. So if Jesus can have love like that for us, while we were his enemies, then surely it behooves us as his disciples to love our enemies as well, right? So, that's all right. If you read carefully this passage... You won't find anything here or anywhere else in the Bible to contradict that. The point here, and in other passages like this, is not that God is giving us permission to go out and take gleeful revenge against our enemies. Rather, it's that God is promising to save his people forever. When God says he will give his people victory over their enemies, he's assuring us that he will finally save us from all the forces of evil in the world that oppose him and his good plans for us. This can include, as it did in Micah's day, enemy nations that are trying to stamp out God's people, but it also includes all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. And all the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that try to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. Persecutors of the church. Those who mock God and his word. False teachers and wolves within the church. And behind all of those people, Satan and his demons doing everything they can to deceive and to annoy God's people. All of these enemies will finally be defeated forever when Jesus comes again. God's people will be like a carefree young lion, the top of the food chain, right, with nothing to worry about from any predator. That's what we'll be like when God puts down every evil power that opposes him. Now here's the thing. Of course, this includes not only external enemies, 
like persecutors and invading armies and so on. It also includes the evil that is inside us. What God in his goodness wants for us, his people, is not only that we should have victory over the forces of wickedness out there in the world, but that we should have victory over our own wickedness, over our own sinful tendency to choose what is evil instead of loving what is good. Brothers and sisters, you've heard it many times from this pulpit that we are all sinners. There's not one of us in this room or in any other room on earth who is not every day sinning against God in thought, in word, and in deed. We have not loved God with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And our sinful state is so deep that we literally could not stop sinning even if we wanted to. And we don't really want to at bottom. In our hearts, we love sinning. The New Testament describes this situation, our situation, as one of slavery to sin. As sinners were enslaved by sin, were held captive to it, were conquered by it, defeated by it, unable to get away or to master it. And apart from Jesus Christ, this is the reality for every human being. But in Jesus Christ, God's first and most urgent desire is to free us from this enemy, from the power of sin itself. And praise God that Jesus Christ has defeated this enemy. Your own greatest enemy is defeated. In Jesus Christ, you have victory over the sin in your heart. You have victory over every sin that would enslave you. Now, again, don't misunderstand me here. I don't mean that when you become a Christian, you'll never sin again. No, you Christians out there already know that that's not true, right? All of us who are in Christ, we still are engaged in a fierce struggle with sin. Day by day, we face temptation. And day by day, at least some of the time, we we fall to it. We're still sinners. But already, Jesus Christ has secured a victorious outcome for us. He's already won the prize that will be ours when he comes again. Jesus makes his victory ours by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He pours that gift out on all who have faith in him. So if you have trusted in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit in you and with you now, working to transform your heart from one that loves evil to one that loves good, to free your heart from bondage to sin so that you can enjoy the perfect freedom of living just for God. This doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. By the power of his Holy Spirit working in us, Jesus will defeat the sin in our hearts. He will do it. It's guaranteed. 
The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is God's guarantee that he's going to bring that work to completion. That means that if you've received the Holy Spirit from Jesus, then no matter how hard the struggle with sin is day after day in your life, in the long run, you cannot lose. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, and if you're united with him by his spirit, then sin cannot triumph over you forever. Because Jesus Christ has already triumphed over sin. So in this life, he will continue to empower you for the daily struggle with sin. You can turn to him for all the help you need in those moments of temptation. And when he returns on the last day, the victory that he's already won for you will be fully yours. And you will live as a conqueror of sin in Jesus Christ forever. That's what's awaiting you, Christian. God promises to give his people victory over their enemies, over every external enemy, but also over that toughest enemy, the sin in our own hearts. And we see this in Micah chapter 5. I'm not just making it up. We see it in Micah chapter 5, verses 10 to 14. Remember, God has just finished telling his people that they'll be like a young lion romping around, tearing up all their enemies, right? An image of victory, of, um, of triumph. And immediately after that exciting image, speaking to the same people about the same great and glorious day, look at what God says next. In verses 10 to 14. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Weird, right? I will cut off. I will destroy. I will root out. And who is God doing this to? To you. To his own people. At first hearing, it might sound like, oh no, God is talking about the sad part again. The time of defeat, the bringing low time. But no, if I'm reading this passage right, God in these verses is still talking about that great and glorious day. About the day of God's victory for his people. In the day when that shepherd ruler from Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, comes again to defeat the enemies of God's people, to raise them up and to make them secure forever, to be their peace, on that day, the Lord will also cut off and destroy and root out every last trace of sin in the life of his people. God says he will cut off their horses and chariots. Now, I know there's a couple of people in this church who really love horses. 
I want you to know, don't worry, God isn't anti-horse. The, the point here is that horses and chariots and cities and strongholds, these are all symbols of military power in the ancient world. God promises to destroy his own people's military capability, to disarm them. On the same day that he's going to give them victory over their enemies, he gets rid of everything that you would think you'd usually use against an enemy, right? So why does God do this? I think the point here is that God is putting an end once and for all to the people's self-reliance, to their idea that they can do it on their own strength. No, God is going to make it clear that the victory he's giving his people comes not from their strength, but from the one who shepherds them in the strength of the Lord, from Jesus Christ alone. God will cut off the people's idols, their fortune-telling, their sorcery, all these things that they're tempted to turn to and to lean on instead of the one true God, their Savior. All through the book of Micah so far, we've seen that the people of God have been their own worst enemy. Right? Because of their sin, they're destroying themselves and each other. That's what the sin that has captured their heart and corrupted their way of life is doing. Well, in Micah chapter 5, God promises that he will give his people victory even over that worst and most pernicious enemy. He will cut off and destroy and root out every last bit of sin in the hearts and the lives of his people. That's not God punishing his people. That's God liberating his people. That's God giving us the victory. I will cut off. I will destroy. I will root out. This is the same thing that God promises to do in your heart, Christian. To cut off every last bit of sin. Everything that loves evil. To root out every obstacle to trusting completely in God. He's going to get rid of all of that. So I wonder, are you up for that? Are you up for that? It sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? And it is. But it's good. It's victory. And God will be faithful to continue that work in you until he has given you that victory in full. So now in closing, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you promise to give your people victory in Jesus Christ. Victory over all our enemies, over all the forces of wickedness in the world, and also over every last trace of wickedness in our hearts. We thank you that you've begun this work in us already by your Holy Spirit, and that you're faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ's return. Yours is the victory, O Lord, and we praise you for it. Amen.